Welcome investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamotko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, podcast listeners, to the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Kesslering. And on today's show, we welcome special guest, Shay Huang, CEO of Boxed, an e-commerce grocery shopping platform selling bulk consumables to households and businesses. Boxed recently announced a going public transaction at a $640 million enterprise value. On the podcast, Shay discusses why he left the partner track at a white shoe law firm to pursue entrepreneurship, how Box evolved since its founding in a garage eight years ago, how Box competes with the likes of Walmart, Amazon, and Costco, key insights into its going public transaction with SPAC, Seven Oaks acquisition, growth opportunities, and how Box plans on getting to $1 billion of revenue and more. To disclose, the Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF does hold a position in the shares and warrants of Seven Oaks Acquisition. With that said, please enjoy our podcast with Shay Huang, CEO of Boxed. So I'd like to welcome Shay on the podcast. Today, I was going through your background and, and your LinkedIn profile the other day, and I noticed you started out your career as a lawyer. Seemed like you're well on your way to the on the partner track, ditched that, had a a bit of a U-turn in terms of your career, deciding to pursue startups and entrepreneurship. Of course, here you are now as CEO of a company in the midst of going public. But prior to that, uh, what was it like and what made you ditch that partner track and go on to try to do something completely different? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I have to say I really miss uh, being in front of a monitor at 3 a.m. at a law firm uh, <laughs> on a Saturday morning. So, uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, so I, I generally felt like I learned uh, a lot at the law firm. Uh, our legal team likes to say that I, I wasn't a real attorney. I was a tourist because I was only at a law firm for about two or three years. Right. And so it may sound like I know what I'm talking about, but, but they say I'm not a real attorney. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, being there two to three years, you definitely learn a lot. And um, especially being there throughout 2008 and 2010. Um, that was such a uh, transformative time or a formative time uh, in my career because it was such a tumultuous time for the markets. And so um, uh, I can firmly say I've seen the ups and as well as the downs, uh, especially starting my career on September 15th, 2008 at the law firm, about nine hours after Lehman Brothers collapsed. So uh, I learned so much. Uh, and joking aside, you know, I really do sometimes miss uh, those days uh, in, in the law firm because uh, of of all the ups and downs that we experienced. Yeah, and certainly it taught you how to burn the midnight oil, which is certainly something that is sometimes necessary in the world of entrepreneurship. Speaking of which, you founded Box.com in your parents' garage. What was the initial business plan and how has it evolved over the past eight years since its founding? Yeah, you know, uh, on on what you just said, Julian, it is so true. Like uh, anyone who's been at a law firm or been on the sell side or been at an investment bank, um, uh, the sweet is that much sweeter because <laughs> you know uh, uh, what the other side tastes like. And so it's, it's, uh, um, it, it makes it all kind of calibrated, I would think. And so, you know, no matter how late I'm working at Box these days, I'm just like, well, just not as bad as, as a law <laughs> firm, actually. Um, uh, and then also, you know, um, starting in your, uh, uh, your, your parents' garage in, a, in, a, in central New Jersey, 
uh, it can seem bad, but again, you know, compared to what, and, and I actually felt like I had a great time and I look back on those times uh, quite fondly in the garage. So, uh, we started off there, um, now about seven and a half years ago with a very simple thought and a very simple premise that, you know, uh, more and more folks were going to buy, um, uh, items on their mobile phones, uh, which seems like a no brainer, Captain Obvious statement today, but you know, rewind seven, eight years ago, that just wasn't the case. Right. Um, and then if we believed that that was going to be the case, uh, what was the biggest category that we can go after? And we thought that was grocery and consumer packaged goods. So um, we started off with that simple premise in 2013 and now seven and a half, almost eight years later uh, on, the, on the cusp of going public. And so you really simplified things, buying items on your phone, but there's obviously a lot more that, in, that goes into it than that. Describe Boxed as having proprietary end-to-end AI, artificial intelligence, and robotics-driven e-commerce, e-commerce platform to deliver a user-friendly shopping experience for bulk consumables. I watched some videos, did see what these robots are up to in the fulfillment centers. That being said... It's a highly competitive environment out there in grocery and retail. What's your secret sauce? And why do your customers pick Box instead of Walmart, Costco, Amazon, and those behemoths in the market? Yeah, you know, on, on what you just said before in terms of um, simplifying it, uh, I, I tried to rewind the clock about seven, eight years. And uh, when we sat in the garage, that was basically all that was in front of us. Right. Uh, and then, of course, um, if I could rewind the clock and go back to the garage seven, eight years, I'd be like, listen, <laughs> there's going to be a lot more uh, where this came from. You know, yes, you're going to get it right. But as you mentioned, there's going to be uh, a lot of challenges, a lot of technology risk, a lot of things that you're really going to have to solve in the ensuing, you know, seven years. Um, uh, luckily, uh, we were able to see some of those challenges, uh, maybe not on day one, but relatively early. One of which is that there's a gap in the market uh, for consumer packaged goods to be sold online. But why is there that gap? Uh, well, most folks will say because it's really hard to make money selling Oreo cookies online. And so part of the way that we made ourselves competitive and part of the ways uh, um, that we were, uh, one of the ways that, one of the reasons why we were forced to build our own technology was the only way that you were going to make money selling these items was if you packed multiple items in a single box. And so, you know, um, you can put a single pack of Oreo cookies and you can own uh, UPS or own FedEx and you will still not make money if that thing is traveling by itself across the country. Um, and so the average consumer per box buys about seven or eight items these days, $100 on average of dry items. The average business customer buys 15 items and uh, over uh, just about $200 uh, on average. So if you think about e-commerce today, you know, it's really hard to remember the last time you ordered eight items in a single box or a single order off anything online. And so the software that, 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 that kind of uh, enables that discovery mechanism, the end result uh, in the fulfillment centers, how you amalgamize that, that, those, that order into a single box, also it needs to be written. Even the physical fulfillment that you see behind me today, I wish everyone here could see behind me, but even the rails are wider, the totes are bigger, just because eight items per box. And so it actually forced us to innovate and build our own technology. So speaking of this technology, I'm sure it didn't exist back in your parents' garage. Nonetheless, you guys developed it over the past number of years. I was wondering if you could dig a bit more into some of the technology used in the fulfillment centers. You have these robots. How does AI play a role uh, in this process and the products? Yeah. So especially, so in the fulfillment centers, um, 
um, or actually uh, across the entire technology stack, your front end systems like your website, your app. Then you get to the inventory management systems like how much should we buy, how much should we carry of a single item. The warehouse management systems and even the physical robotics are built uh, our, our, uh, our ourselves. And so uh, when you get into the machine learning and the AI components, those are most uh, useful in the big data sets that we have. So think on average, yes, we're not the biggest company just yet, um, but we have had millions of customers come through our rails. Um, and if each customer is buying eight items on average, you start to multiply uh, the data set that you have on those customers and that customer behavior pretty quickly. And so using machine learning, um, we can start to tease out, okay, maybe um, uh, uh, Julian or Michael or even me, I think I'm pretty unique. But the reality is I bought Doritos, diapers, and this and that. <laughs> and 50,000 other customers did exactly that last year for us. Right. And you could begin to use machine learning to layer on what they might do next. And so that's how we use AI and machine learning. Uh, um, uh, the majority of it, you know, the, more, the majority of AI and machine learning is really uh, using uh, uh, it for that uh, optimization. And we are talking before the podcast started about how great your background looks being at the fulfillment center and everything going on there. It looks uh, very clean, very efficient. Obviously, these things need to be optimized. And one thing that I noticed with respect to Boxed is some differentiation specifically on how you guys treat your employees. I've heard some horror stories on competitors having to do crazy <laughs> stuff and they're just monitored and can't leave the assembly line and they got to pee in a bottle and all this. You know, it's, It seems like a bad working environment, but you guys are fairly big on ESG principles, setting yourself apart. I was wondering um, how... Does that play a role in the company? And is there a risk that it can sacrifice profitability for investors? Yeah, so um, a lot to unpack there. And the answer is yes, absolutely, there is a risk. Um, we uh, do something that is rather, I guess, revolutionary today, but uh, um, probably wasn't revolutionary years ago, and that's treat folks with dignity and respect. Right. no matter where they are on the wage scale for us. Uh, it, it, it's funny that that is considered ESG today. <laughs> but, you know, a generation ago, that's just how you acted as a human being, you know. Uh, um, but, uh, you know, and so, um, uh, but we try to, to just basically treat our folks uh, as if uh, they were ourselves and we had those jobs. Partially because, you know, with me and my family, my family worked blue-collar jobs, so I know exactly what it feels like uh, as a child of someone who has been uh, in an hourly position and trying to make ends meet. So uh, uh, we do do really great. We really do. We do have great benefits for our employees. So uh, you mentioned it before. I, I'll put some meat on the bone. Like uh, in terms of detail, we we provide free healthcare uh, uh, for folks that are W two full time employees here in the fulfillment centers. Um, we have a uh, um, five hundred dollar emergency fund. So um, the majority of Americans, you know, uh, would go bankrupt if you presented them with a five hundred dollar bill all of a sudden. You know, uh, uh, and we just want to make folks uh, uh, kind of feel comfortable that if they were presented with a bill with a sudden medical bill or auto bill, anything emergency wise, they have this $500 fund to draw down on. Uh, and the list kind of goes on. And absolutely, you can imagine our shareholders and our board uh, are like, man, you, you know, like, you should have been Oprah instead. What are you doing <laughs> running a company? You're like, what, you know, <laughs> can I work there? You know, right. um, and I think I was rather vindicated uh, two times recently. One was in the depths of COVID um, when, you know, back in last March, no one knew if you were going to turn into a zombie if you got this thing. No one just, no one knew what it was. It was really hard to say, hey, this is getting real bad. The whole city is locked down. The state is locked down. 
as of today, but on Monday, I sure hope you're coming to work, you know? Um, and so people are having a really difficult time with labor shortages or people willing to come into work. We did not have a single day where we had, um, where it became a problem where people didn't show up for work. Uh, it was just normal work days for us. Uh, of course, I told them uh, that, hey, like we treated you guys well when quote unquote kind of the balance of power or, or when we didn't kind of have this potential labor shortage in front of us. And so hopefully you'll trust us that we're always going to do the right thing, including doing whatever we can to keep you safe. And Monday morning, people came into work, didn't have any problems. And, um, uh, and I think at that moment for our board, at least, um, you know, I was rather vindicated that, you know, all the credibility went to piggy bank and then we broke it and, and cashed in that piggy bank and people showed up. The second is that on average in our fulfillment centers, the typical hourly employee, the average hourly, hourly employee, not management, hourly, uh, is tenured uh, for almost between two to three years is the average kind of a tenure of the average hourly employee. Um, so because there's robotics, because it's not a totally unskilled job, um, having people in that position longer allows us to be even more efficient. So, uh, and we, we kind of showed that through the numbers. So that's been also a, a good kind of proof point that it's good for them and good for our bottom line. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest growing alternative investment solution providers. With a suite of institutional caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance, the Accelerate One Choice Alternative Portfolio ETF, symbol 1C, ONEC on the TSX is Canada's first alternatives portfolio solution, providing exposure to six alternative asset classes, 10 alternative strategies in one easy to use, one choice ETF that charges a management fee of just 0.2%. The Accelerate One Choice Alternative Portfolio ETF trades under the symbol 1C ONEC on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. You're certainly taking a, a long-term approach to both your environmental principles, or ESG principles, but as well as just overall employee relations. That's that's really great to hear. One one thing I was really curious about was how you go about your acquiring customers, specifically within small towns. As I noticed in the investor presentation, that um, that that small towns effectively make up forty-two percent of your customer base. Um, so I was wondering what what's working for for driving that growth in in customers? Is it word of mouth, advertising? How how's that working? Yeah, so uh, a lot of our advertising in the past or our user acquisition uh, has been organic uh, from word of mouth, and so um, that's all. That's a that's a good thing and also a bad thing as well. So meaning that word of mouth is great, but you actually have to stoke that a little bit and actually kind of push it from behind with some paid advertising as well. Uh, what you actually probably found in that same deck is that we showed. We had relatively inconsistent access to uh, marketing dollars over the years. So we would have times when we actually spend on marketing and times where we turn it down and turn it back up. And so um, with this transaction, one of the biggest things that we're looking forward to is to have the capital to be able to spend, uh, in, hopefully in an efficient way, but in a consistent way throughout time. So we don't have to turn it down every year or turn it down every season. Um, uh, and so that's what we're looking, really looking forward to. Uh, traditionally, because we've had a limited budget, uh, to answer your question directly, Michael, it, it's uh, more bottom of the funnel. So you're looking at paid social, like Facebook, uh, those the social networks. Um, you're looking at SEM, like Google, uh, um, you know, the other search engines as well. So traditionally, that's where we played. And, and hopefully, we can begin to move higher in the funnel 
uh, and go into big brand building campaigns like uh, commercials or, or out of home in smaller towns. Um, so that's something that we're going to be laser focused on. One, one other thing that caught my eye is similar to kind of, kind of traditional grocers and, and retailers, you're having a lot of success with your own private label, label brand. Um, I believe it's called Prince and Spring. And so can you, can you talk a little bit about that and what, what your target is with on the private label side and how that's going to help you uh, hopefully expand margins into the future? Yeah, so the genesis of Prince and Spring was that it actually used to be called Prince and Green. So we were on the corner of Prince and Green in New York City uh, a while back. And so uh, we, filed, we, we filed the application and you know, we called our, uh, uh, our, our kind of law firm and said, hey, didn't file it yet. And they're like, yeah, we're not going to file it uh, for you. We'll save you the money. It's going to get rejected. And we're like, what? what? Like, come on, like what? Attorneys generally love like getting, you know, or charging $1,000 an hour for you to do these things. And so they're like, okay, let me walk you through this. There's already a PNG that sells very similar <laughs> items. <laughs> right. And I was like, oh my gosh, thank you. Uh, we didn't, <laughs> oh, you know, uh, let's try the other cross street. And so Prince and Spring, it never really crosses each other in New York. Uh, they run parallel. So anyone out there that's a New Yorker uh, or knows New York well, yes, I'll admit they don't, it's not an intersection. They never cross. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, first it started off out of necessity. You can imagine few folks in a garage calling the biggest CPG companies on earth and saying, hey, we're in a garage. You want to sell directly to us? They're like, how did you get this number? Never call us back. And so uh, we began to fill white space uh, with uh, self-branded items with Prince and Spring. Over time, uh, we grew that more and more. So now it's about 14% of our business, where over half of our repeat shoppers buy at least one Prince and Spring private brand item. We get to control the brand, the distribution, and the margin of that. And so uh, we really like that. But at the same time, national brands are, are still what draws people through the doors. And so we still need to uh, uh, sell uh, a lot of the national brand as well. So some big news that I definitely want to get into the weeds on is the recently announced merger regarding public transaction with SPAC Seven Oaks acquisition. This deal values your company at $900 million. I was wondering, first, how did the deal come about? Were you seeking to go public? Did you have an inbound? What was some of the background? Yeah, so definitely um, uh, seeking to go public. Um, so you know, just thinking about what the right avenue for us would be. Um, with a SPAC, you know, we, we found most attractive was two main things. And the reason why we went down this road, um, one was the amount of capital we can raise. So a traditional S1, if we followed, if we went out public that way on a market cap, that's, you know, performance to be 900 million or a billion. Um, you know, you're really going to be able to raise about a hundred million dollars in that offering. Um, but for us, depending on redemptions, you know, we potentially could have $300 million on the balance sheet at the end of this uh, transaction. Now, the second is that, uh, 20, we get to tell the story better by projecting out forward. And here's what I mean by this. It's not that we don't make any money today or that we, we're, we have zero revenue today and just wait till 2026, our first dollar of revenue is going to come in. We were able to tell the story of what happens when B2B recovers. So 2020 was a fantastic year for a B2C business. So me, you guys, your families, world shortage of toilet paper. I couldn't complain about 2020 when it came to sales for our typical consumers. But our B2B business saw huge headwinds. And so the airlines that we service, the big Fortune 100 companies, the small and medium-sized offices providing coffee for their employees, that business was very challenged last year. And it was traditionally a quarter of our business. So 
with the S4, we're able to properly tell the story of what happens when the world recovers. And so those were the main reasons why we went via SPAC. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest growing alternative investment solution providers with a suite of institutional caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund, symbol ARB on the TSX, is the world's first SPAC-focused ETF with a diversified portfolio of SPAC and merger arbitrage opportunities in an easy-to-use, low-cost ETF. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF trades under the symbol ARB on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. And then once you decided to go with a SPAC, what what stood out with Seven Oaks outside of you, you had mentioned there the cash and trust? That's obviously being a being a larger SPAC that helps um, in terms of having those funds go on a go forward basis. But what what drew you to them and what they what did did their commitment to dedicating a portion of their founder sh- founder shares to an ESG foundation was that somewhat of a tipping point? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I think back on that process, Michael, I think it was like it was two main things that that at least for me uh, uh, drew me to Seven Oaks. So one was a team, and so that tag team over there. I mean, they've got a great management team uh, between the CEO that is Gary Matthews, who is Gary Matthews, who has been an operator in the physical uh, retail space, has run public companies in the past as well. Uh, tag team with Drew Pearson, who understood tech or understands technology, having been the portfolio committee chair for General Atlantic, one of the most prolific growth investors uh, in America um, uh, for technology. He was a, he was at Gen- GA for almost a quarter century, and so the marriage of the two uh, allowed them to really understand our story. Because yes, we sell Oreo cookies, but remember, we also sell software as well now, um, and so it's. You would find folks that really understand the Oreo cookies, but have no idea what to do with software, or people who sold software for a living that, you know, you know, when they looked at Oreo cookies, they're like, what are you guys doing with this, with this? And so that was one of the dispositive kind of um, uh, factors. The other one uh, was their ESG component, as you just mentioned. Uh, we really believe that we're going to be one of the few uh, publicly listed companies uh, uh, that ESG-focused funds uh, can own uh, if they want exposure to e-commerce. There's just not a lot of names out there that are uh, that have ESG as well as e-commerce, and we think um, that will hopefully be uh, uh, quite a boost to us in the long run. Um, but we do see ourselves uh, as having an ESG mission, as Julia mentioned before, because of not only what we do but how we do it. And digging into some of the details on the transaction and going through the investor presentation you provided, you do have aggressive growth plans. I noticed that you do plan on getting to approximately $1 billion in revenue over the next five years. What are the key drivers of that growth and where's the focus? Yeah. So uh, if you zoom out, uh, I think the good thing that we were able to show in our presentation that we, that we filed is that we expect and we want this capital raise to be able to help us to grow at the same pace that we were growing at. And so when you look at the top line sales, overall, if you zoom out a few years, we're growing at a 30% CAGR or so. Um, if you compound that out uh, after B2B recovers, over the, over the forecast period, you get to just about a billion dollars. And so it's not like, hey, hockey stick, it's, you know, it's, it's roughly the same CAGR. Right. Um, on the gross margin side as well. So um, Back in 2017 or 2016, we were like negative 13% gross margin. 2020, we were positive 14%. And so we think across the company, software included, 
we'll get to 30% at the end of the forecast period. So having the capital to enable that continued growth um, and not a hockey stick growth is kind of how, how we're thinking about this whole thing. But o- overall, there's a few big opportunities. Uh, if I could boil it down for everyone listening here, continued tailwinds in B2C just because of how the world has changed post-COVID, recovery of B2B. B2B was already growing at a 50 plus percent CAGR in the last four or five years for us. So recovery in B2B. And then plus you have this software business that launched this year, which we expect to generate $12 million in year one out of. So in terms of this capital raise, the SPAC merger, there's cash and trust, there's a pipe financing. One thing that I did notice is Palantir is participating in the pipe for $20 million. Can you talk a bit about how that relationship works? Yeah, I'm really excited about that. So uh, we think we have great big data tools, um, you know, talking to Palantir, seeing what they have. They have really great data tools. Not to say ours aren't, aren't, aren't great, uh, but, you know, they, they definitely have a lot of experience in this space. And so uh, we're looking at projects. Uh, we're currently kind of actually uh, beginning uh, work on projects that uh, not only help us, but help our software clients. So for us, you can imagine eight items per order, as I mentioned before, as we expand fulfillment centers, uh, as we get more and more kind of operational data in the books, um, really kind of working with them on how we can use that data so that not just engineers and data scientists, but everyone here in the company can click a few buttons and understand exactly based on the data what the recommended uh, action item is, uh, um, whether, whether, whether it's weather, travel delays, input cost increases. So all of that, I think, will be very important for us as a company. Um, as we layer that into our software platform and that expertise, um, uh, we will also be able to introduce our software clients uh, uh, to uh, Palantir and also uh, uh, um, have some of that DNA baked into our software platform as well. So again, uh, not only benefits us, but also benefits our uh, software clients. You've come a long way over the past eight or so years from your parents' (laughs) garage. Now looking at you now, this fancy fulfillment center in the background, which I'm sure is significant upgrade to your parents' garage. No disrespect, of course, (laughs) to, to to your parents' garage. So all that has happened in a span of eight years. Where do you think Boxed will be eight years in the future? I, uh, I think we will be further along our mission uh, to spreading wholesale through our technology throughout the world. Uh, I think we'll have more fulfillment centers, we'll have more brand awareness, and that business will continue to hum here in the U.S. But actually, we'll be able to use our software to expand internationally, as we already have this year, uh, into Southeast Asia and eventually throughout Asia and and throughout international markets um, uh, um, uh, using our software. And so I really think um, uh, we'll be on a similar mission just higher profile, bigger company, um, uh, bigger clients. As as boring as that sounds, you know, we've stayed the course for almost eight years now. I, I expect us to stay the course over the next eight years as well. So, um, uh, but I, I'm excited. Hopefully, you can tell. Like, you know, we're we're, we're raising a lot of money with this uh, SPAC transaction. If this is very successful, again, depending on redemptions, we're going to have the same amount of money raised in this one transaction as we've raised over the last eight years. Uh, and so you can only imagine the acceleration we can do on both our e-commerce business and the software business. Yeah, certainly it's exciting. And when the time comes and you're as big as Amazon, uh, <laughs> one last fun question. Are you going to copy Jeff Bezos and go into space? Are you planning something crazy? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe I'll, 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 do the, uh, I'll do the opposite. I'll explore the deep sea you know, instead. <laughs> you know, they go, they're going up. I'm going to go down. You know? uh, no, I, I, I think my passion is really selfishly doing uh, running box and and kind of doing all these things and seeing the progression of some of our employees who are showing up with not a lot in life not a lot of things that have gone well in life and then 
years later, I see folks, you know, better station in life, new, new, they moved to a better neighborhood. You know, I just saw someone with a brand new car the other day. I'm just like, man, I remember when that person was down on, on, on his luck and, and I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. And so to be able to help people here, uh, and potentially more people who are grounded with us here on earth, uh, um, I, I think probably is where my passion lies rather than going to the, uh, to the moon. Um, I hope the stock goes to the moon, but you know, uh, for me, I'll probably stay here grounded. <laughs> yeah, of course, investors the same, but it's truly a great mission and we love what you built at Box. So keep on uh, fighting the good fight. We wish you the best of luck with your going public transaction. If investors are interested, uh, Seven Oaks currently trades under the symbol SVOK. Once this deal wraps up, wraps up and closes, your symbol will be BOXD. And that's for investors interested in the stock. Che, I want to thank you for coming on the show today, sharing your insights, clearly your passion for the business, all that you've accomplished, and we wish you the best of luck in the future. Thanks, Julian. Thanks, Michael. All right. Cheers. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.